Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up and welcome in. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. With open phone lines for you at 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is a telephone number. Hit me up on Snapchat, SnapJHood, on Instagram, IGJHood. I can always use more friends. If you follow me on Snapchat, I will follow you back guaranteed. Try it. Just hit follow by looking for uh, SnapJHood and look up. If I don't follow you back in 24 hours, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. I was going to guarantee you something, but I'm not going to. I've had uh, colleagues from ESPN Cleveland guarantee something like, hey, if they don't get Baker Mayfield, then I'm going to eat horse poop. I'm not going to do any of that. But I do invite you to follow me on Snapchat, SnapJHood. And Instagram, IGJHood, as we're with you here. Short show until 9 o'clock. We've got NBA playoff action for you right here on ESPN 1000. No Under the Hood show on Thursday and Friday because we got the N. F L draft. So we got uh, day one and day two of that all part of the mix right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So much to get to as again, we have a a truncated shortened show. I want to get to this before we get into the NFL draft. And we're going to hear from Brett Edwards, this half hour college game day on ESPN 1000. Uh, You always hear him during the fall. So we'll hear from Brad, his thoughts about the draft in just a moment. I, um, I want to get to this. If you have to ask someone, is this racist? Or if you have to ask someone, am I racist? Then aren't you unaware of what's racist and what's not? Have you ever asked someone, hey, I'm going to say this statement. Is it racist? I want you to think about Kate Smith. Do you know the name Kate Smith? The story came about that Kate Smith, and she is uh, a singer in the 1930s. There are certain teams around sports, hockey, baseball, that still use Kate Smith's performance of God Bless America. And it cannot be erased from its place in Philadelphia Flyers history. That rendition will no longer be featured in the presentations of Flyers hockey because of music that she sung back in the day. Let me explain you to the story in case you haven't heard the story. Okay. So Kate Smith, who I I know who she is, because if you watch just one Yankee game, when they're playing at Yankee stadium in the seventh inning, they play her version, the old record player version of God bless America. And so the flyers were doing this as well. And so the reason why that she's not around anymore and in some of these places and won't her song won't be heard is because there's been a couple of songs that have been unearthed that she sang. One of them was that's why darkies were born and picking any heaven. There's a few offensive lines, you know, some very offensive lines of what she sang in those songs. Like someone had to pick the cotton. Someone had to plant the corn. Someone had to slave and be able to sing. That's why darkies were born. Though some theorize it's actually just satire considering that she recorded with African American artist, Paul Robeson. There's also some other songs about colored children living in an orphanage and great big watermelons and things like that. That was sung by Kate Smith in the 1930s. Well, the Flyers 
had made a statement and they said that while Kate Smith's performance of God Bless America cannot be erased from its place in Flyers history, the rendition will no longer be featured in our game presentations. And to ensure the sentiments stirred this week are no longer echoed, Earlier today, we completed the removal of the Kate Smith statue from its former location outside of our arena. I had no idea that there was a statue erect, erected for Kate Smith. I had no idea that she had a statue in Philadelphia. But CBS Philadelphia reports that the statue was initially covered with the black drape before it was fully removed. The Yankees have been using that God Bless America song for Kate Smith's for the past 18 years to signal the start of the seventh inning stretch. A representative for the team told the New York Daily News that they'd been aware of the recording that had been previously unknown to us and decided to immediately and carefully review the information. And uh, more than likely, the Yankees won't be using that God Bless America song from Kate Smith either. Now, Kate Smith's family is appalled by this It says Kate Smith's family appalled by Flyer's decision to remove statue over racist lyrics. And of course, her family is going to come to her aid and say that she wasn't racist. Her niece, Susie Andron, says that Aunt Catherine was probably one of the kindest people I've ever met. She was certainly anything but prejudice. Uh, She loved everybody. Well, I read the story and I will tell you this. There is something about millennials and their influence in our country. They cannot be undisputed. That feeling of love, that feeling of inclusion, that feeling of nuance, and also that uh, feeling of making sure that you are culturally appropriate for other people. This is what millennials have brought to the table. And I understand for some people that this is difficult because a lot of people don't like change. Hey, it's Kate Smith, and she did this in the 1930s. We got to move on, right? Got to move on. But I think that it is okay for someone to point out what is incorrect. Instead of just saying, boy, you know, I can go to Spotify or I can go to iTunes and call that song up and play it 24 hours a day, it doesn't bother me. But for some, it does bother. It does bother some people. Now, what's so strange about this is that it's 2019. We just now knew that Kate Smith was singing songs like that about watermelons and and colored people and all these other things. It's just this is the first time that we've heard the story. I thought that was odd that we are just now realizing this. Now, here's sure those lyrics are offensive. I don't care if she's singing it with Paul Robeson or Red Fox or whoever she's singing it with. It is offensive. There's no question about it. But at the same time, I love in today's age that if change is going to come and it's changed for the better, I have no problem with it. Because for me, I don't have a problem with change. Uh, if they were, if Kate Smith was still singing God Bless America on that old recording at Yankee Stadium or in Philadelphia, that wouldn't bother me. But I do appreciate those that want to be able to present change and, and kind of shine a light on things that are inappropriate. And I think for some of us that love tradition, this has always been this way. Listen, I deal with this on a daily basis with people that I am surrounded around that always look at things and say, well, you know, it's always been this way. Why, why should we change things? It's always been this way. It's okay to be able to have change. 
And if change is going to make sure that everyone is on the same page, change is going to be to a point where, hey, that person sang lyrics that were offensive. That person said something offensive. I mean, look, yeah, to me, when it comes to race and culture, nobody should be uh, talking about uh, each other in that type of way. Absolutely not. But if, if change is going to come, fine. Yes, it was in the 1930s. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. And so I don't mind them making that change uh, if it's going to be best for all parties. Uh, because it, let me just make a, let me, let me put a bottom line on it. Here's the bottom line. You don't want something like this to affect business when you know it's wrong. Okay. When you hear those lyrics, if you're not offended by it because you're not black, then that's fine. But understand it from a business standpoint. From a business standpoint, you don't want people to look at your business and say, oh, you're tolerant of this? Oh, well, I'm going to pull out my sponsorship. I'm going to pull out my dollars. Uh, me as a fan, I won't be coming to your games. And so you don't want that either. On the, uh, Again, from a common sense standpoint, that's wrong. Those lyrics. On the other side of things, you look at it and say, from a business standpoint, you, you really want to stay in business and by supporting Kate Smith when people say that those lyrics she sang were offensive? Yeah. You want to be on the on the side of right instead of the side of tradition in that regard. Glad you're with me here on ESPN 1000 on the ESPN app. The NFL draft is right around the corner. We're going to hear from Brad Edwards in just a moment. I, I want to tell you that when it comes to the draft, the only thing I'm looking forward to tomorrow is to see what the Arizona Cardinals are going to do uh, by are they going to get Kyler Murray with the number one pick? And what happens with Josh Rosen? Do they have two young quarterbacks in Arizona? That's really my own only focus for the first round. When it comes to the Bears, you know, they don't draft into the third round. What they have is what they're going to go with. Of course, you got to figure out what the kicker is going to do. Uh, is it going to be Robbie Gold? Will it be somebody else? Otherwise, the team is pretty much set, and you're just adding garnish along with that stake with what the Bears are from what they were last year. Um, so some thoughts here from Todd McShay. He was on with Captain Company uh, the other day talking about uh, this the running backs because just because Mike Davis and Tariq Cohen's on the team doesn't mean the Bears can't look at running backs. Here's how McShay looks at the running back class uh, in this year's draft. This year's running back and wide receiver class are very similar. And by that I mean there's just there's not a ton of talent that you love in the first round. But then you start to feel really good about the values that you can get in round two, three, and four. For example, uh, Miles Sanders from Penn State. He's not elite, but he's really good. And if you teach him how to pass protect a little bit, you've got a guy who's sudden, explosive, and catch the football. David Montgomery is a grinder coming out of Iowa State and a player that just he loves the game, runs with good contact balance, and, and finishes his runs. Justice Hill, he's not going to be your every down back, but throw him in a rotation. The Oklahoma State back is, is used to a spread offense and you know one cut and go, and then also can catch the ball really well. Damian Harris, we were talking about him potentially as a first-rounder coming out of Alabama. Terrell um, Henderson from Memphis. Bryce Love from Stanford, who's coming off the injury, and we'll see how long that takes. But there could be a value there, same as Rodney Anderson from Oklahoma, who was a second, third-round prospect coming into the year, and you may be able to get him in the fourth round because of the injury. So there's a lot of talent in this year's class at running back. So thoughts there from um, a guy that I respect 
greatly in Todd McShay, who covers the NFL draft for ESPN.com. Let's also hear from Ryan Pace, because the general manager of the Bears has put together a team that won the division last year. Can they go further this upcoming season? We're going to find out. But Ryan Pace talks about the large pool of players that are available for the third round. We're trying to project right now who will be there. So I would just say that third-round cloud, for example, it's just bigger than it is uh, in previous years. There's a bigger pool of players that we're talking about. Hey, and there's certain players where we could say, God, man, if this guy, we value him so high, if he's falling to this point, we'll consider going up for him. Or, hey, there's enough good guys we're going to stay right here. Or if they're all coming off, hey, maybe maybe we back up. So there he is. Uh, a, some thoughts from Ryan Pace. And again, it's really about the third round. You're just trying to add some some key players here for the draft for the future more so than the present. Maybe that running back that they find is someone that can help them right now. We will find out. I just know one thing, that without Jordan Howard, and I'm not trying to say that Jordan Howard was Neil Anderson or or Walter Payton, but what I'm saying is, is that if you're going to make that trade, Find a running back that can give you what you're looking for from a production standpoint. Running between the tackles and also being able to catch the football. The flexibility in that position is very important. I don't know what Mike Davis does. I don't know if he is going to be able to have better numbers than Jordan Howard, but we're going to find out. He and Cohen are a nice one-two punch, I suppose. But it's nothing wrong with trying to find someone because, again, trading Jordan Howard is one thing, but don't outdumb the room by still not finding the running back that you want. Glad you're with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app and Jonathan Hood with you. Let's turn to a draft expert, a college football analyst, Brad Edwards, covers college football for College Game Day on ESPN 1000 during the fall. You hear that show. Uh, I talked earlier to Brad Edwards about a number of things, and here's how our conversation goes. Brad is a, a college football analyst, and I love having him on because even though it's the draft, he won't tell you exactly which player is good for what NFL team, but he does a really good job of breaking down certain players and what they brought to to the table in college and what they could bring to the table in the pros. So I asked Brad what stood out most about Kyler Murray, the quarterback for Oklahoma, this past season. I think people look at Murray, and of course the, the thing you notice immediately is his athleticism. I and mean, there's a reason that he was a top 10 pick in baseball uh, as an outfielder is because the guy is obviously a, a great athlete and uh, he kind of looked at him as a five-tools player. And you see some of that when you watch him play football. It's just his speed. I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, a, a lot of times we look at a quarterback and we, we talk about, uh, you know, him being a, a dual threat and that he can run. Um, Kyler Murray is a dynamic runner. Um, and, and yet that's, that's not the reason, uh, I mean, obviously, because, because that's, that's not going to be enough in the NFL, but even in college, uh, that wasn't what made him so great. I mean, certainly it's something that defenses have to worry about, but, uh, even with his height, uh, being less than ideal, he, he was really good at throwing from the pocket. And I think that's what surprised a lot of people. And it took, a, you know, a good number of people, um, the bulk of the season to recognize like, you know what, this guy is actually really good uh, throwing from the pocket and very accurate at doing it. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think certainly um, in the NFL, you got to get creative and find ways to, uh, to use his athleticism to your advantage. But, uh, but obviously, if you can't throw from the pocket, you can't succeed in the NFL. But I don't think there's any reason to believe that he can't do that. And uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be fun to, to see, you know, whatever team takes him, um, what they do with him. But I will say this. 
at the time when he made the decision to go all in on the NFL, um, I thought it was the right decision. But at the same time, I didn't imagine that there was any chance he's going to go first overall. I thought there was a chance he could be the first quarterback taken. First overall kind of seemed like a stretch to me, but then, um, you know, you start hearing stuff, and now all of a sudden I think it's, uh, to a lot of people, it seems like a foregone conclusion. So was your, your thought coming in that Nick Bosa was the best player that would be leaving college to go to the draft? Yeah, I felt like between Bosa and Quinn and Williams, you know, they're, they're you know, there, there's so much value on defensive line, obviously, at the next level that 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 was. Um, you know, I, I guess if I guess if the the best player had been at a different position, you know, I would have thought, okay, I could I could see the possibility that a quarterback ends up going number one because um, you know probably not going to take a receiver with that pick or a linebacker or something like that, but. But when you got two guys rated that high who are on the defensive line where they can be real difference makers, especially a pass rusher like Bosa, um, it, it seems like that would be more likely than someone, um, you know, taking a little bit of a leap of faith in a quarterback who doesn't have I- ideal measurables and, and, let's be honest, didn't have a ton of experience as a college quarterback. He, I mean, he really only started for one full season. Um, and so that was kind of that was kind of why I, I wasn't thinking that he was going to be a, uh, a number one overall pick, but uh, looks like that could very well be the case. Uh, one other thing on Murray, uh, Brad. I guess one thing we could look at with Kyler Murray, if he is drafted by Arizona at one, Cliff Kingsbury is the new head coach for Arizona. So because of Kingsbury's, you know, um, his thought about offense and some of the innovations that he brought. Uh, as a head coach with Texas Tech, maybe he can get even more out of Murray. How do you? What do you think of that pairing? If that's going to be the case? Yeah, I mean, look, Cliff Kingsbury's problem was never his teams being able to score, and it was never his quarterback's you know ability to produce. It was his defenses couldn't stop anybody, and in that league, they just got outscored a lot. And so, I I think it'll be fascinating to see what he does. I mean, I'm guessing just because of. Um, you know, just because he is just so much a college coach that there's going to be a, an even heavier college element to his style of offense than what you're already seeing, you know, seep into the NFL in recent years. And so, uh, I mean, I, I, would, I would guess that um, they're going to move him around a lot, or at least that's what, you know, what Kingsbury would do with, with Murray, um, you know, try to, try to get him outside the pocket where he's at least a threat to run. If he chooses to, um, but uh, who knows? I, I don't. I don't know exactly uh, what to make of it. But uh, he, you know, he played in a system that was pretty wide open. But he was also a guy that you know you, you saw him make a lot of the throws that you want an NFL quarterback to make. It wasn't simply just you know dump the ball off to uh, to guys and let them get a lot of yards after the catch. He he, he was able to make some really difficult throws. College football analyst Brad Edwards with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. The other quarterback I want to ask you about is Dwayne Haskins. Being here from Big Ten country, saw a lot of Haskins. There's a feeling uh, from some that Haskins will have maybe the better career than Murray based on how Haskins performed. What, What do you remember about Haskins at Ohio State? Yeah, I thought Haskins improved a lot uh, in the second half of the season. Now, I know he looked really good like the first couple weeks and people got very excited. 
Um, but there was a stretch in the middle of the season where I, I was having my doubts about him, you know, being able to uh, to really make all the throws consistently. That uh, especially it was the game that actually bothered me the most was the game against Penn State, which uh, on paper you would say that he led them to a fourth quarter comeback, and he had a couple of touchdown passes. But it, if you're watching closely you're seeing that it's it mostly the product of yards after the catch. And the thing I remember after that game was looking back at his downfield passing. And I, if I remember correctly, he did not complete a pass more than 10 yards beyond the line of scrimmage in that, you know, in that whole game. And, he, and like, that was concerning to me. Uh, and then you, know, you started to, to see a lot more of the downfield stuff and his ability to throw accurately uh, a little bit deeper. Um, if I do have a question about him, though, it is it is still, you know, can he do that at the NFL level? Uh, it's not not a question of arm strength, um, but if you just look at Ohio State's offense and you watch them play a lot, they had so much success with uh, running crossing routes with superior athletes. They would, you know, just kind of get the ball in their hands. Uh, just a couple yards beyond the line of scrimmage, and they, you know, basically designed a play to kind of clear out room for them, and they would just, you know, with their speed and athleticism, make plays in the open field. And uh, look, you don't throw for the amount of yardage and the number of touchdowns he did just doing one thing. You can't do that as a one-trick pony. But he did have a whole lot of passing yardage that was, um, let, let's just say, he wasn't he wasn't throwing it very far downfield. Right. Um, and so I, I think I have more questions about him. Um, obviously, he's got better size than, than Murray does, but, but just because of the, uh, the types of routes that he threw most often are, are things that probably aren't going to work all that well in the NFL. You mentioned Quinnen Williams, the defensive tackle from Alabama. Oh, what, how, how impressed were you with him as a pass rusher? Because there are thoughts that he could be a top three pick, and as you mentioned, he, he was so explosive that he can be considered one of the top players in this year's draft in the first round. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy who was a real surprise coming in because he was a first-year starter. Um, He had played a little bit, but not a ton as a backup the year before, and uh, just a guy that uh, most people outside of that locker room didn't know much about. And what really jumps out at you is, is his quickness. You know, is it just right off the ball? Um, you, you'd see a number of times where, when you go back and you watch a play over, you know, you'd see that the ball is snapped, and uh, often the uh, the the next guy on the line to react after the center was Quinnen Williams. I mean, he's moving before any of his fellow defensive linemen. He's moving before the guards and the tackles are moving, and uh, and, it, and it's not just moving, but he's getting into the backfield quickly. And uh, so it is, I don't know, it's always, it's always tough uh, to pass rush from the interior of the line, uh, more challenging than coming from the outside. But uh, if you look at his numbers, um, his, his rate of getting pressure um, was, was pretty impressive. Now, uh, I, I, would, I would say one of the, you know, maybe the least impressive games he had all season was the national championship game. I was expecting him to be a major factor in that game. Um, the, the few plays that Alabama made in that game uh, were, were mostly him, um, but he didn't get the, the pressure I was expecting him to. But for the rest of the year, I mean, he was one of the you, – you couldn't watch an Alabama game without noticing him. And so I'll be, I'll be interested to see, um, you know, 
what uh, what people at the NFL level make of him uh, because uh, certainly against the run, he wreaked a lot of havoc and he showed potential on passing downs, but I, I don't know that he's someone that you would draft him just simply because of what he can do as a pass rusher, but he's uh, – it definitely it's his quickness off the ball that I think really separates him. He's he's definitely a um, you know a different type of defensive tackle from that standpoint. Okay, a couple of Bears questions for you, Brad, because even though the Bears do not draft until uh, the third round, it'll be late for them because of oh, wow. the picks that they made. Because Khalil Mack is part of the Bears, so you got to be able to give up something to Oakland. So that's why the Bears don't have to worry about the draft so much. But there, there are still a few holes that need to be filled around Mitch Trubisky. Here in the off season, uh, Jordan Howard was traded to Philadelphia. The Bears felt that Jordan Howard, the kid from Indiana. They felt that he was not catching the ball enough. Like he would run the football, he was never explosive, but he was just a a solid back. But I think that Nagy wanted something more. So I will ask you about um, Damian Harris, the running back from Alabama, who could be there. Anything that you remember about Harris with Alabama? Yeah, I mean Harris is one of those guys that doesn't really uh, jump off the page at you uh, or jump off the screen at you. Uh, either one. I mean his numbers don't blow you away, his athleticism doesn't blow you away, but he's he's just very consistent. And I, I think what you really I mean first of all he seems just from from everything that I've been exposed to to have have great character, uh, which is not just you know someone who's going to represent the team really well, but I think he's going to be an asset in the locker room wherever he goes, but I, I, I think you, you saw from his sophomore year to his junior year um, the work that he put in in order to, to get faster, um, and he always had you know, good you know, running ability, uh, but he was lacking breakaway speed, and, and I, I still wouldn't say he's a speedster, but I, I think there was a noticeable difference in his ability to make long runs in his last two seasons because of some of the work that he had put in uh, in order to get faster, in order to lose a little bit of, of weight and, uh, and and do that. He is a, um, I would say, is probably an above-average receiver for a running back. I don't know that I would put him in Josh Jacobs' category as a as a receiving back, but um, but I think he's solid in that area. And, uh, I mean, he's one of those guys who just strikes me as, as uh, being a um, just a, a second option. I, I don't see Damian Harris as a, you know, as a um, – a primary back who's going to be getting the bulk of the carries, but I do see him as a guy who could have a long career. Um, just you know, being able to uh, you know take a few carries here, catch a few passes there. Uh, that's kind of uh, that's kind of what he looks like to me. Not a not a you know not a real big guy. Um, so like I said, there's nothing about his measurables that's going to jump off the page at you. But I just say he's 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 solid. So let me tell you what's been happening in the last week or so. So. I talked to Jim Brandstatter, the veteran voice of the Michigan Wolverines, just last night, and he's pretty optimistic about Michigan for this upcoming season based on its schedule. What do you think? Yeah, look, so so last year, the, the playoff predictor kind of um, raised some eyebrows when it, it had Notre Dame going into the season as the team fourth most likely to make the playoff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and you can say it got lucky, whatever you want to say, um, but that was, it was pretty good way to debut. 
Um, it was uh, Clemson, Alabama, Notre Dame at four, and then I believe Oklahoma was number seven, seventh most likely to make the playoffs. So it did did pretty well the first year, and now Michigan is uh, is third most likely to make the playoff behind Clemson and Alabama again. And um, look, I, I get it that there were a lot of people going into the game last year saying, if Michigan can't beat Ohio State this year, I don't know when they're going to do it. Because it, it did feel like going into that that, all of the advantages were to Michigan, and we saw what happened on the field. Um, and I know it, 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 it sounds strange to say the same thing again a few months later, but I think once you kind of take a step back and you look at the way everything played out, um, I, I would say it's, it's still true, which is that if Michigan can't beat Ohio State this year, I don't know when they're going to do it. Um, because that is the one game on the schedule that you still have to just – question because of the the recent history in that series and yet we have to acknowledge Ohio State lost a first ballot Hall of Fame head coach and they're replacing him with a guy who has three games of head coaching experience they lost a starting quarterback who put up one of the best seasons in the history of the Big Ten and they're replacing him with a guy who's never started a college football game and on top of that Ohio State goes to Michigan and so um Having that game in Ann Arbor, along with, like you mentioned, the rest of the schedule, the way it lays out with, mm-hmm. uh, with, with Notre Dame also coming there, this is their chance. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, sure, they've got a lot of really good players to replace on defense, but I, I think their offense uh, should be really good. And um, I, I'm a little uneasy as to how much more uh, the playoff or how much the playoff predictor likes Michigan more than Ohio State, <laughs> I would think that, like in my mind, they're a lot closer than that. But, um, but yeah, and Michigan is uh, is is the very clear favorite to win the Big Ten according to our metrics. I don't know that uh, they're as clear cut in my mind, but there's a lot of stuff to like about Michigan. And look, if 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 the Ohio State series had not been what it has been over the last ten plus years. I I don't think we'd be looking at Michigan the same way. But I just think there's this reluctance to to believe or skepticism, you know, as far as them actually winning that last game when it, when it finally gets there. And, and lastly, talk to Ryan Harris, the, the radio voice of the um, Notre Dame fighting Irish on the radio side. And he, uh, and I went to the spring game this past weekend. And so uh, optimism there as well with Notre Dame, a good feeling, feeling that a lot of people around there feeling that uh, they could take another step this year. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly they got to be excited uh, coming off of last year and, um, you know, having some good pieces back. Now, this is this is where the schedule becomes an issue because mm-hmm. last year that schedule was pretty friendly. And, and look, you never know. I mean, there are always times that we look at these schedules before the season starts and like, okay, that's an easy win, that's an easy win, that one will be a tough one. And then some of the teams that we thought were going to be good or not and some of the teams that we thought would be kind of average end up being good. So you you never know this for sure, but as we sit here in April, um, at Georgia and at Michigan, that's for, and look, at Stanford, it shouldn't be a piece of cake either at the end. Mm-hmm. And so with those three games on the road, I think it's tough to get too excited about Notre Dame's chance of getting back to the playoff because, I mean, let, let's be realistic. They're not getting in with two losses, um, especially, I mean, look, no, no one's gotten in the playoff with two losses yet. But to get in with two losses and not be a conference champion, which Notre Dame obviously can't be, um, it, it seems almost impossible. So they're going to have to win two of those three games 
to even have a chance. And I think, you know, depending on the year and how things play out uh, elsewhere, I don't even know that a one-loss Notre Dame is a lock. I know that people who have followed the sport for a long time say, oh, there's no way the selection committee is leaving out a one-loss Notre Dame. I don't know. I mean, you put them up against a one-loss team that's a conference champion, um, if it comes down to that for the last spot, I, I don't think it's a slam dunk. And so you look at the uh, the rest of that schedule, um, there aren't, there aren't a lot of aren't a lot of top twenty five teams on there based on what what I think you know that some of these are going to be. Like, I mean, outside of those road games. So, so uh, to me, that's what it really comes down to. Especially Georgia and Michigan, they're going to have to find a way to win one of those two games uh, in a hostile environment. And uh, if they can't do that, they'll end up having a good season, but it'll be disappointing compared to last year. Well, you heard it here fo- here first, folks. Uh, Brad Edwards. Uh, tamping down the expectations for the fighting Irish this year. Well, I tell you well, what, Jonathan, if you, if, you of all people know, you don't just you just you don't just walk in between the hedges and roll your oh, helmet well. out there and think you're going to come out with a victory, right? Well, I see that's one loss for sure. There's no there way they're go. coming out. Of, there's no way they're coming out of Athens with a victory. That's not happening. I just thought that Michigan and Stanford will be interesting, but if 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 if, if it's one loss, if that's going to be the one. If they run the table the rest of the way, good for them. But if one loss is not good enough for them to get into the um, Final Four, then this is what you know. This is what you deal with. I mean, it was bad enough that you had sixty percent Georgia fans in South Bend the last time these two met, and now them going to Athens—that's going to be an uphill climb for sure. Yeah, yeah. Look, I just, I love these games, and um, you know, Notre Dame being an independent can you know can play several of them in a year, but as college football fans, uh, we love to see these teams that you don't normally see on the field uh, together, and uh, this will be a fun one. As always, Brad, I appreciate your time. We'll talk in the fall. All right. Sounds good, Jonathan. Take care. Thank you. Brad Edwards with us as we talk about the NFL draft and college football under the hood with Jonathan Hood. Jonathan Hood. So pay attention to my word, because it's the truth. Meditation is the mind. It brings the youth. It's like a verse you could never read out of a book. Dropping the line in your mind like a fish hook. On ESPN 1000. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Hey, come on. Glad you're with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. We've got NBA action for you coming up. At the top of the hour right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Did I tell you about the Under the Hood podcast? Do you know I have a, I have a podcast? Do you know that there's 11 different ways in which you can hear the Under the Hood podcasts? I counted it. It was 11 different ways. So if you're a podcast listener, right, like I am, because I'm certainly a podcast listener. Davis is a podcast listener. We want you to be able to be part of the Under the Hood podcast. So that means that if you are not available weeknight to listen to us live, you can always go back and listen to episodes of Under the Hood, whether it's on TuneIn, Google Play, whether it is on Stitcher, SoundCloud, whether it's on um, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Player FM, Listener Notes, Podchaser, all these different places where you can find my podcast. Just look for my name, Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. It's the, the show name and my name. Or just a Google search, UTH Pod, and you can get a list of our shows and special interviews that you might have missed. So the most recent one is an interview I did a few years ago with Chet Kopic. I had to dig it out and I found it. The late Chet 
Coppock, as we talked about last week, passed away in a tragic car accident in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, we got a chance to talk about some things. Again, I, I don't know if I've, I might have aired it in 2014, 2015. I don't remember, but I had to find it so that way you guys could be able to, to listen to it because devastating to see the uh, godfather of sports talk radio in the city, uh, Chet Coppock, passing away. Well, here's something. Chet talks about how his relationship with the WWE when he worked there and his relationship with Vince McMahon. I, I want to find out something that I don't know uh, about you and your relationship with Vince McMahon. Um, when did you first meet Vince McMahon, and did you know the old man? Did you know Senior? I, I met uh, the old man uh, once, John. That goes back to uh, the early 1970s. I met him with uh, Bob Lewis when he was in town for a card at uh, the amphitheater. And I did get to know Vince very, very well. As you know, uh, I was a ring announcer for the part of the, uh, the trifecta media back in 86, which was New York, L.A., and Chicago. And I worked uh, Chicago branch at the Ben Rosemont Horizon. After I got done with that, I, you know, continued as a ring announcer for Vince for about six years. But we really got to know each other in 88, ironically, just after I had joined the old loop, the the Dahlmeyer, Brandmeyer, Kevin Matthews loop, the uh, the forerunner to what, you know, you're doing now. And Vince flew me up to uh, Stanford, and we met, and then we flew me to Buffalo, where I did uh, a couple of dark matches with, ironically, Nick Bockwinkle, who was looking for a job. And Vince called me up, and uh, I've never mentioned this story before, and that is that uh, uh, Vince wanted to step down from Saturday Night's Main Event. And he offered me that, that gig, and also offered me the old uh, Superstars Challenge. And I, I gave a lot of thought to it, John, but number one, I didn't want to live in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. And two, you know, as you know, if you're a ring announcer and you're doing it once every month, and you're kind of uh, winking at the audience, everything is cool. But if you get involved... And, and you got the Tuxan, and you got the Ultimate Warrior, and the Iron Cheek, and the Hulkster, and Colonel Jimmy Hart, and Bobby Heenan. They're all spinning around, and eventually they're flying off, but you are forever in the middle. It's kind of like, in my opinion, John, it's kind of like joining the mob. Mm-hmm. Once you're in, once you're in, it's like Hyman Roth saying to Michael Corleone, this is the business we have chosen. <laughs> well, think about WrestleMania, the, the first event of WrestleMania. Think about it. Um, the pageantry, Liberace, uh, the rock and that wrestling connection. Uh, think about uh, when you, Cindy Lauper, that whole thing, Dick Clark, yeah. Muhammad Ali. When you first heard about a WrestleMania taking place in Madison Square Garden, what was your initial reaction? I thought it was crazy. I really did. I thought that uh, Vince was reaching way too far. And, you know, I, I do know this for a fact that he he virtually mortgaged himself out to get that show up and running and uh, to make all the uh, necessary arrangements for, for pay-per-views across the country. But, you know, I, I, I give Vince a lot of credit, and I've always admired his, his chutzpah, if you will, John. And he gave me, when I was doing TV in New York back in the mid-'90s, uh, you know, we did the show early on that was going to, uh, to use a wrestling vernacular and put us over. Mm-hmm. And the guy who brought down was Vince. And... I, I got a quote from, uh, I wanted to Stephanie, his daughter, who said that not even God can tell Vince McMahon to do something. And uh, I mentioned that to Vince. I said, Vince, your daughter says that, uh, you know, if the good Lord was here right now, he couldn't tell you what to do. And Vince, being, you know, the shy, retiring, bashful type that he is, said, well, my daughter's absolutely right. 
And uh, excited to be listening. I hope you got the message. <laughs> yeah, not only working on WrestleMania two as a ring announcer uh, at the Rosemont Horizon, which was had to be a great experience for you, but also working a lot of Armed Forces Network uh, broadcasts with Gorilla Monsoon. You were there. Oh, at the, you, were, you were there at the Garden. How many? How many of those shows did you do for Armed Forces Radio? I would imagine Gorilla and I did about uh, about four or five of those. The one that comes to mind, John, is uh, WrestleMania. Can. That would have been the media after Vegas, I believe, in 93. Yeah, 94 at the Garden, WrestleMania 10, with uh, a main event that I believe was Yokozuna against uh, against Bret Hart. A tremendous match on that card. One of the greatest matches you could ever hope to see was that ladder match between uh, Razor Ramon, who was the uh, greatest Hispanic giver to come out of Robbinsdale, Minnesota, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Shawn Michaels. And, uh, you know, working with Gorilla, um, he was as warm as he could be. He, he made life for me so comfortable. I mean, he just defined the word class. So, you know, every time, John, I look back and I think about those years that I was doing that, fortunately, all the memories are very, very fond. The only bad memory I, I ever picked up during the time I spent as a wrestling announcer was one night, Brutus Beefcake, who was a world-class jerk. Mm-hmm. Um, put a towel at me because I had inadvertently brought out uh, the baby face rather than the heel, which kind of in the face of the gimmick. Although I had not been informed of this, and it was that mad and threw a towel at me. But as you know, John, knowing wrestling crowds, when when a wrestler does that, it's almost like telling the crowd, you know, this guy is now fair game. But you know, that's that's way in the past, and other than that. My memories of, of hanging out with those guys are nothing but uh, fun. And it's sad to be greatly to know that, you know, uh, a guy who was as wonderful as Randy Savage was to me has been gone now for, you know, rather extended period of time. So that's just part of the conversation I have with the late Chet Kopic. You can hear that interview in its entirety on my Under the Hood podcast. Again, if you're a podcast listener, you can hear a number of interviews I did with Chet, which I found uh, last weekend that I put up on Under the Hood with John the Hood, the podcast. Glad you're with me. You're listening to Under the Hood. As I combine all the juice from the mind, heal up, wheel up, bring it back, come rewind. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Time for Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jonathan Hood with you. Always the weird, the silliness. You never know what you get from... Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000. Don't forget, we got NBA at the top of the hour right here on ESPN 1000. Um, we talked earlier about the Damian Lillard, Lillard shot, right? Uh, as he sent Oklahoma City home in last night's NBA playoff game. Well, Damian Lillard's sister was on Instagram, and she was recording live uh, at the buzzer as Damian Lillard came through. Listen to this.
Yes, that is your. Yes. And so <laughs> she was excited. You guys see the video of that as well. That's available on her Instagram as that shot uh, fell. How about this? Uh, a man breaks into Louisiana governor's mansion and then falls asleep on the couch. Yes, Renard Green was booked on counts including simple burglary, criminal trespass, and criminal damage to property. So it revealed that this extraordinary security breach of the governor's mansion, and this guy, Renard Green, who's 34, of Baton Rouge, was booked Wednesday. Um, he actually tried to disarm one of the officers when they first came to get him because they found him sound asleep on a couch and had broken an antique wooden table. <laughs> like you just came in not to rob him, but just to go to sleep, apparently. Uh, he tried to disarm one of the officers I mentioned. Booking records show that Green was f- found asleep at 6 a.m. The records say that he was uh, placed in leg shackles and becoming extremely violent. Like I don't even know if he knew who, whose house he was in, uh, but Reynard was sleeping. He was like, you know what, I'm just going to take a few... Uh, take a nap here, take 40 winks and just chill out. No, you're at the governor's mansion, sir. Crazy. Um, this story. Fugitive turns himself in in because he's sick of living in a vacation spot. So a, a fugitive turns himself in because he's sick of living in a vacation spot. So the this jailbird chose to uh, sell over the Spain's Canary Islands. The 64-year-old man who fled an Austrian prison over a decade ago turned himself into police, saying that he was fed up with living in that sunny vacation destination. <laughs> he said it's just not what it used to be. Uh, he says he's lived there long enough. The fugitive, whose name wasn't released by authorities, was carrying two suitcases when he surrendered to police in Salzburg at the railway station. He escaped from prison 10 years ago, uh, and now he's locked up in a Salzburg jail. He says, you know what? Yeah, it's just these this this paradise with these palm trees and this blue water and these and beautiful sandy beaches. Yeah, it sucks. I want to go back to prison. Whoa, so strange. We thank you for listening and being part of the program here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. Our thanks to you for listening. Our thanks to Jesse Rogers and Brad Edwards for being with us. Show produced by the Dr. Sean Davis on the other side of the glass. Okay, I will talk to you Saturday night after the NFL draft. I'll be with JD there and also on Sunday from 3 to 5 right here on ESPN 1000. So for Sean, I'm Jonathan. We'll talk to you soon. Don't forget the Under the Hood podcast, ESPN 1000. Jonathan Hood. I'm so good. On ESPN 1000.